0: I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. And uh, on your bulletin, we have verses 9 through 14. But this morning, we are going to be focusing just on verse 9. Hebrews 13, verse 9. And this is critical because everything else that the author says up to verse 14 is hinged on that verse. We want to just spend a little time looking at the teaching of that verse this morning. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Our last study in the epistle to the Hebrews focused on the subject of Christian leadership. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, the recipients of this epistle were exhorted to remember their leaders who spoke the word of God to them. And the way they were to remember their leaders was to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. They were to have them under scrutiny, as it were, and they were to imitate their faith, the assumption being that they are worthy of emulation. And then follow the author's statement in verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. At first blush, this statement seems abrupt and somewhat disconnected from what the writer had said previously in his instruction to the church with respect to its leaders. But as we concluded in our study last time, far from being the case, this statement regarding the unchanging character of Christ, seems to make the point that the Lord Jesus is the definitive model of spiritual leadership and that elders and other church leaders must therefore take their cue from him if they're to lead such exemplary lives that's required of them. You can see the connection. Remember your leaders... Consider the outcome of their faith and imitate them. And it's as though the writers say, by the way, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the model if you really want to know how your leaders should be living. Now our text for today, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, seems to be related also to verse 8, so that the point of the author is that because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He must be the focal point of Christian doctrine. He must be the focal point of what is taught in the church of God. Indeed, since he is unchanging in his plan of redemption and is unchanging in his purpose for his church, It follows then that the faith we embrace as Christians, the truths to which we subscribe, must be the same, must remain the same in every age. And clearly this is implied in the author's instruction here in verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So let's pick this verse apart. Diverse and strange teachings. What are these? These are teachings which offer the attraction of variety and novelty, but which are really foreign to the tenets of biblical faith. They hold the attraction of novelty and of variety, but they are foreign to the tenets of biblical Christianity. They are strange in that they do not follow the pattern of sound doctrine, Second Timothy chapter four. And verse 3, rather they promote what Paul describes in First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3 as, quote, a different doctrine which does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, end quote. And such are teachings that are ultimately subversive, such are teachings that ultimately undermine and erode faith in Jesus Christ. They're attractive, they're new, they're novel. They offer variety, and that's what people are after today. People, it seems, it's built in human nature that people always are out for some new fad, new fashion, new ways of thinking, and people actually bring that to the Word of God. And Such teachings are diverse in that they come in a variety of attractive yet deceptive packages. You see, it's one thing to go in for creativity and variety in strategy and in methodology as far as doing ministry is concerned, and there's nothing wrong with that. We should always be looking for new strategies, new methodologies, new ways of doing ministry. But it's quite another thing to pursue creativity and novelty when it comes to interpreting the content of Scripture. People are doing that every day in our time. Ever so often, someone, some brilliant, quote-unquote brilliant Christian comes out with a program of what they call deconstructing the faith. And for those of you who might not know that sophisticated idea of deconstructing the faith, just remember this one thing, it boils down to simply this, it is that of creating a Christianity that is palatable, that is convenient, and that is not costly. The fact is, what God has said in his word is fixed. The psalmist says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And the fact that it is fixed means that it cannot in any way be altered by the tastes and times of our, of our present culture. So the author says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, The Greek verb led away is the same verb that's used in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 14, where Paul, writing to the Ephesian Christians, he warns them against being... What he describes as being carried or tossed about by every wind of doctrine. It is a verb Jude uses in Jude 12 to speak of apostates who are swept along by winds. And what the author of Hebrews, Hebrews, is therefore saying. He is urging these Jewish Christians, under his pastoral care, that they are to see to it, they are to endeavor, they are, they are to ensure that they do not allow themselves to be carried about, to be swept along, to be led downstream, as it were, by all kinds of weird doctrines. Doctrines that purport to be divine truth, but in which in reality are poisonous deviations from the truths of God's word. That it's an imperative, suggests personal responsibility on the part of his hearers. It suggests that when it comes to embracing the true gospel, the true Christian faith, there can be no place for passivity. There can be no place for indifference. Why? Because at stake are eternal issues, indeed soul-endangering issues. And here we recall his earlier warning in chapter 2, verse 1, where he instructed these professing believers, he told them, therefore, we must, imperative, we must give or pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In fact, in verse 3 of that same chapter, he had warned them, that to fail to do so is to effectively neglect such a great salvation. Likewise, beloved, you and I have the responsibility, you and I have the solemn responsibility to ensure that we are not driven about by currents of false heretical doctrines. I would say, especially in these days when there's a crave for new fads, there's a crave, crave for new fancies as they relate to contemporary expressions of Christianity, ours is the bound and solemn duty to see to it that we are not carried away with the errors of the ungodly and so fall from our own steadfastness, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. We owe it, to the health and safety of our souls. And we begin to see a further connection between the warning that's given here in verse 9 and the statement of the preceding verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which highlights the unchangeable character of Christ. And together, these verses are clear as to how we may detect, as to how you and I may spot false, spurious, strange teachings. From these verses, we see that strange, heretical teachings are shown for what they are. They become evident from the fact that they do not square with the spirit and teaching of the Lord Jesus. Beloved, the bottom line is this, that where there is submission and allegiance to the unchanging Lord and his word, there will be clarity and purity of doctrine. Because whereas strange doctrines come and go or undergo modification with the times, Christ and his word remains constant. You'll hear people talking today about fresh ways of interpreting. You'll hear it in academia, fresh ways of interpreting the text, fresh ways of approaching Christianity, fresh ways of understanding how to live as Christians. Well, let me say this. As the saying goes, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. We can mark this down that if ever someone comes up with a so-called new interpretation of Scripture, new approach to Christianity, new approach to Christian living, then that person is not following the unchanging Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that at the end of the day, the yardstick by which every sermon is to be assessed, the yardstick by which every Bible study, every theological statement is to be assessed, is by this timeless axiom, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, what's the significance of these time markers, yesterday, today, and forever? The word yesterday has in view the era of the proclamation of the prophets, the proclamation of the Lord Jesus, and the proclamation of his apostles. Throughout this era, prophets and apostles bore faithful, consistent testimony, faithful, consistent witness to the person and work of Christ. For instance... Acts chapter 10 verse 43 tells us that all the prophets bear witness of Christ. That is why in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 2, Paul could, Peter could point his readers back to, quote, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through the apostles, end quote. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5, the holy apostles and prophets of Christ are set forth as the bearers of his word, the bearers of his revelation. And notice what we find then in all of these passages. In these passages we have just read, these verses all attest to the united witness of the prophets and apostles to Jesus Christ in the past. What the writer describes as yesterday. Mark this point very well, because we're going to come to one of the heresies in our time. It's In fact, even as I speak to you, it's one of the heresies that's being promoted, and you will hear a little of it later on. But Jesus Christ is the same today, the writer says. And the word today relates to the present era of gospel proclamation, Jesus Christ is the same today in that despite the passage of time, there is absolutely, watch this, there is absolutely no need for revision of his word. For this word which he delivered to his apostles and prophets is the very word that's preserved for us in scripture, the word of God. And of course, this is what constitutes what Jude speaks of in Jude verse 3 as the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Beloved, everything you and I need to determine truth, everything you and I need in order to live godly, everything that you and I need to do ministry, may I say this, is locked in this book, in this book. Any ideas, any philosophy, any suggestion as to how we are to live, any suggestion as to what constitutes truth, any suggestion as to how we are to do ministry that is not in conformity with this book is to be shunned like the plague. You and I must not be afraid of being what we call old-fashioned Christians. The songwriter says, give me that old time religion. And he says, it was good for Paul and Silas and it's good enough for me. That's the approach we need to take. Why? Because the word of God for you and me today is fixed. There's nothing new. There's no new revelation. There's no fresh word from God. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is here in Scripture in this book we call the Bible. And Jesus Christ, he says, is the same yesterday. He's the same forever. And with respect to his being the same forever, the word forever further emphasizes the truth that the truths regarding him are fixed and unchangeable. Which means that any teaching that purports to be, or rather that deviates from the character and teachings of Christ, are to be shunned. As poison. A serious consideration of this truth takes us back then to verse 7, doesn't it? In which a writer called on his readers, he says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. The truth is if our leaders are truly teaching the Word of God, if our leaders are truly men of the Word of God, committed to teaching the truth of God's word, and we give conscientious regard to what we have been taught from the Word of God, then it's less likely that we'll be led astray and be corrupted by false heretical teachings. Second Corinthians eleven two through four. And so how vitally important, how critical, how crucial it is that we pay attention to what we hear, as our Lord Jesus said in Mark 4, verse 24, he says what? Take heed what you hear. He also says, take heed how you hear. And we need to do so. Because for good or bad, the teachings to which one is exposed can either edify or subvert one's faith. That was why in urging young Timothy to diligently give his energies, his time to the pursuit of, of the word of God, of being skilled, being sound in the word of God, Paul warned him in Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 as follows. He says this, but avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Such is the deadly potential of strange, specious doctrines. And that is why, you see, regardless of how much you may respect and love your teachers, those who teach the Word of God, your pastors, your elders, you should never uncritically accept everything they say as doctrine, as gospel, as the Word of God. We are to listen. Yes, we are to respect them. We are to listen but we must not be gullible, we must not take it as a given that because they are knowledgeable of the word or might even be trained in the word of God, then everything they are saying must be right. They're subject to errors. The Apostle James says, in regard to those who would be teachers, he says, in many things we stumble, we we can make mistakes the flesh can insert itself in our teaching such that we get out of line with the intent of the word of God promoting our own ideas, promoting our own agendas. Yes, good godly men succumb to that temptation and that is why the word of God encourages us to be like the Berean Christians. Remember what Luke says of them in Acts chapter 17 verse 11? He says, these were more noble-minded in that they received the word of God with all readiness and what, what did they do? They searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. We are to be like Marian Christians. Your leaders can err. Your leaders, my friend, and this is one of the temptations many preachers fail, many preachers of the word of God fail. They are preachers who hold back with respect to declaring the, fo- the whole counsels of God The question is, are you being exposed to the truth, the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Or are you under the hearing of what is palatable, what is popular, and what will not ruffle feathers? The Apostle John warns in 1 John 4 verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. To see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out. Into. The world. And listen beloved. Even good godly leaders. Even pastors. Let let me tell you this. Even pastors. Elders. Can themselves succumb to dangerous heresies. You know that? Yes. There are good. Godly men, men who are reputedly sound in the word of God. And there are cases where they go off course, they go off the rails in terms of doctrine, in terms of teachings. And one of the reasons for this is that many, listen, many a prevail of false doctrines, many a prevail of heresies, uses great learning. Sophisticated speech, sophisticated argumentation to peddle their heresies. That is why we must never, never be intimidated by somebody who, who, even if they hold six theological degrees, We must never be intimidated. We must never be afraid to question, to query, to wonder if they're speaking truth. And we are not left in the dark as to what truth is. That is why we have Bibles. We ought to be like the Berean Christians. Let me tell you this. There are professors, theological professors, who talk a lot of nonsense. Right now, you listen, my friends, some of these people, they are in top institutions that were once reputed for orthodoxy, for correct doctrine, for good, solid preaching, pro- pro- promoting, producing men, solid men for the ministry. And what are they teaching today? They are teaching poison that will sink souls in a Christless eternity. That was why Paul could warn as he did in Romans chapter 16, 17 and 18. Listen to the warning of the Apostle Paul to the Christians at Rome. He says this, I appeal to your brothers. And the very fact that he's appealing to them suggests what? Earnestness. He says, you have to hear this. He says, I appeal to your brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Let me tell you this, and this is a fact. If you ask the question, why, for example, are theological professors? Why sometimes they go off the rails and they are known for orthodoxy, they're known for solid teaching. Why do they go up? Because of the pressure of academia. You see, one of the pressures of of, of the academy, of, of theological academia, is the pressure to what? Produce. The pressure to be original. And there are people, my friends, who will Do everything they can in the name of originality, even if it means twisting the word so that they can publish books, so that what? that The institution can be placed on the map, as it were. Money is involved, too. And that's why great care must be given to the injunction of our text. Do not be led away by diverse and strange doctrines. Well, we have, to ask, we have to ask the question then, what are some of the strange, diverse teachings, some of the strange, diverse doctrines we find in our time? Teachings which you and I must exercise caution, lest you and I be led astray into heresy. And we can't, believe me, if we were to take time out to list some of the current poisons theological, doctrinal poisons out there. We could spend all, and there would be no profit in that, really. But let me just run through just a few of those that are current in our time. Recently, in addressing the subject of homosexuality, a prominent leader of the church in fact, of the the Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Father, as he's called, the Pope. In connection with the subject of homosexuality, he says this, quote, We are all children of God, and God loves us as we are. Do you know that that is being taught in evangelical churches as well? That regardless of how one is living, regardless of whether or not the person professes faith in Christ, listen, we are all God's children. And you'll even hear it say it said, and God loves us all. Let me tell you, that's poison. That's dangerous. What does the word of God say in, in contradiction to that? Listen to Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will Wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The Bible says in Romans 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what the Word of God says. The Bible says, Says my friends, um, the Bible teaches that we are as though there are some who are of God. The rest of the world is lying in the arms of the evil one. You know, humanity is categorized not as how our present-day societies categorize you. The Bible knows nothing of black and white. The Bible knows nothing really of rich and poor. Ultimately, what does the Bible know? Who is on the Lord's side? and who is not First John 5 verse 19 the apostle John says we are of we know that we are of God that is believers and the whole world lies in the arms of the wicked one how about this second heresy strange heresy once I'm saved, it matters not how I live after because once saved, always saved. You've heard that one. Once I'm saved, it matters not how I live. I mean, I can live any anyhow because of the doctrine of eternal security. Let me just say this. I believe strongly in the doctrine of eternal security. Well, listen to what the Bible says. And this does not contradict the doctrine of eternal security by any means, by any stretch of the imagination. Here is what the Word of God categorically teaches. 1 John 5 and verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not him. That's what the word of God says. First John 3 verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God by this. It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's as clear as day. And it does not contradict the doctrine of eternal security. The word of God is saying, listen, God saves and God keeps those who are saved. Jude 25, He's is able to keep us from falling. But here's the point. If a man or woman keeps on sinning, keeps on sinning, sinning without any kind of conscience, then that might be an indication that that person has not been truly born again. Don't get me wrong. Now, let me clarify something. Let me clarify This is not to say, as we often say, that true believers in Christ do not struggle. In fact, true believers in Christ can struggle, can fail and fall miserably, times over. But here's the question, how does it leave you, how do you feel, what's your your heart, where Where are you in relation to pleasing God? Does it bother you? Does it make you sick? Does it make you feel sick? Here is one that is common right now. In fact, I don't know how common it is, but it is being propounded by a prominent preacher, prominent pastor in the Southern Baptist Church. Here's what he says. We need to to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. We need to unhitch Christianity. Think of that statement very carefully. We need to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. You remember passages we read earlier? Of him, that is all the prophets, that is Jesus, they bear witness. Peter is writing to his readers and he says, I want you to remember the teachings of the apostles, the prophets, the word you, and I don't remember the verse, but you, 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 you can go back in your notes. We, we went through that. He, Peter calls on his readers to remember the prophets. If we unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament, then what does that do to biblical faith? In light of 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, which says this, all scripture is God-breathed, all scripture, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished to all good works. Here's what this same preacher says. He says when dealing with the unsaved, we should not tell them that the Bible says this and the Bible says that because that's offensive and they're not gonna listen. I asked the question, where then is our authority for preaching? Because here's the point, if we have no authority, might as well we just close this building and call it a day. Listen, the, the authority of the preacher, the authority of the teacher of the Word of God lies not in himself. It lies not in what some authority, some ecclesiastical authority invests in him. The authority of the preacher of the Word of God is the Bible. The Bible says, the Bible says, as the Bible says I remember when our little boy and I I rarely do this and I insert this one just to make the point remember our little boy Ryan, when he was a little baby boy and we were having devotions one day he took up the Bible and he was there fiddling with the Bible said Ryan what are you doing with the Bible he says I'm going to preach so I said okay go ahead preach What he did, he slammed down his hand. The Bible book, my friend. May I suggest this to you? The book? The book? Here's what the prophet Isaiah says, to the word and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Our authority comes from all of scripture. Old Testament and New Testament. Now what's suggested by the context of this epistle, the strange doctrines that we come now to look at the context and we are winding down now. Why did the writer give this instruction and why did he say what he said in our text? What was this strange doctrine by which these Jewish believers were being led astray? Those were teachings which were aimed at displacing the person and work. Of Christ with the tenets and trappings of the old Mosaic covenant. You see, in two ways, they were being bombarded by pressure to divert, to change course from their faith in Jesus Christ. On the one hand, they face persecution. On the other hand, they face constant indoctrination. Now, we gather from the B part of verse 9, the specific. False teaching by which these Christians were being drawn away from the person of Christ. It seems, it seems here uh, that it concerned the idea of, that there would be some kind of infusion of grace. And I'm using this expression you'll hear today in certain circles. Some kind of infusion of grace could be derived from eating foods that were related to the sacrificial offerings. These Jewish believers were being lured by the Judaizers into thinking that they could secure their salvation, they could find favor with God by partaking of these foods that came from the altar. And my friends, this is equivalent to what millions in our time today pursue so as to gain acceptance with God, namely salvation by sacraments. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. Salvation by regular attendance of mass, partaking of the Eucharist, as they describe it, in short, salvation by works. But notice in our text, against the tendency to be led away by such teachings, the readers of this epistle, they are told why they should not allow themselves to be lured away by such strange teachings. Here's what he says in the B part, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Here's the point the writer was making. And the application for us is this, that whether it relates to food and drink, whether it relates to washings, to baptisms, the partaking of communion, these things in and of themselves, they have no value. At the end of the day, that which is of saving value is the object to which they point. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not water baptism. It is not taking communion. It is not going to church. It is not going through rituals and ceremonies that save. Oh, my friends, one could be dutiful in these regards. One could be baptized. One could join the church. One could do a host of things in the name of rituals, in the name of ordinances. But listen, that will never save a soul. All these rituals, however diligent one may be in observing them, cannot savingly redeem or draw the soul to Christ. That is why Paul could say in First Corinthians 8, verse 8, he says This food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. The same could be said of baptism, water baptism, or any other ordinance. That is why I could say to the Galatians that if they turn to circumcision as an additive to faith in Christ, Christ will be of no benefit to them. What does that mean? It means this, that if a person is professing faith in Christ and someone at the back of their mind, they are believing that they have to do this, they have to do that, they have to go through this ritual, they have to not eat this, they have to not eat that. If they have to worship this day, they're not to worship that day. Let me tell you, if that is at the back of your mind, it is Christ and something else. And Paul says, listen, if you are circumcised, that is to say, if you go back to the law, if you aim at law keeping, Christ will be of no benefit to you. You see, legalistic adherence to rituals as a way of earning favor with God, all that these things do is to gratify the flesh. All that these things do is simply to boost one's self-righteous pride. And that is the way of self-made religion, of humanly devised system of salvation. And I, I like how one, one man puts it as he, as, he, as he looks at what's behind this tendency to fall for rituals and not look to Christ. He says concerning the obs- the... the, the, the Uh, concerning adherence to rituals, to the exclusion of Christ, he says this, in these the human heart delights. (laughs) It is relatively easy to bring a lamb to the temple, to make a pilgrimage to Mecca or Rome, to attend a service in the church, to put on the outward trappings of religion. They comfort us with pleasant thoughts that here at least we have done something which pleases god they make it easy for us to evade the deeper and more disturbing crisis of a bad conscience that's why you have my friends people who can live like the devil and tomorrow go take the eucharist and they say well i went to mass and everything is all right Why? Because they find their comfort in rituals, in sacraments. Similarly in evangelical churches, if a believer says, if a professing believer says, well, I was baptized and I attend church regular. so long as I'm doing this or that, I'm all right, because at least I'm coming to church, I'm giving to the church. At the end of the day, such religiosity, according to our text, displaces faith in Christ, the only source of salvation, so doing damned souls to a Christless eternity. He says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened with grace and not with meats, which are of no value to the soul. This grace is mediated to us as we feed on Christ, that perfect sacrificial lamb who was slain for us as we nourish our souls on him and on his finished work. That's the grace that we are going to get in order for souls to be nurtured, in order for souls to be strengthened. Our our souls are not going to be nurtured by taking some elements without reference to Christ. Hence, from beginning to end, Christ must be the sole object of our faith and of our trust. We need to look to him as the source of truth, lest we be led away into error, and we need to look to him as the object of our faith and source of our eternal salvation. That's the thrust of the text. See to it that you be not led away with diverse and strange teachings after teachings which are not patterned after the spirit and teachings of Christ. May God bless these words to our hearts for his name's sake. Amen.